again and welcome back to part two of this episode of home education, EOTAS and how to make sure that your children have their provision back. Joining me again is Hayley Mason and Nicole Lee of SEM Legal who are expert STEM solicitors. Hello ladies. Hi. Hello. Hi, thanks and thanks for staying with us. Um, I just want to pick up on something that um, lots of parents have been finding back in school is that say for example they had a one-to-one -one, um, that that one-to-one -one is now in another bubble or a floating TA that they had is now being used in, a, in another bubble so their child isn't having the provision back that they used to have and um, what can they do about that because then then again as I've been saying you go to school and you feel like you're making a fuss saying you know this is my child's one-to-one -one and they haven't got them um, how is, what is the best way to approach that? It will really require looking at the child's EHC plan because obviously every EHC plan is slightly different. And what you need to make sure firstly is that this is a one-to-one -one dedicated to your child because the way local authorities, um, at least at first glance, draft the EHC plan, they're usually pretty useless, if I can be blunt about it. So it might, for example, say, Jimmy would benefit from one-to-one -one support, but it might not actually quantify the level of one-to-one -one support. So it might just say that they have access to a one-to-one, -one, and that is essentially able to be interpreted however the school or the local authority wants to interpret it. So we often see parents who actually think that their child has full-time one-to-one dedicated to them, and in actual fact, it is a class TA. If it is just a class TA, there is obviously movement with school and flexibility with the school about how they use those resources because they're not dedicated to any one particular student. So if you do have that, that's a bit more of a um, difficult scenario than if you have an EHC plan that's specifically quantified because if your child, if you have a look in section F and have a real study of that section, if that specifically says that your child, for example, has 30 hours of TA support, that means that that one-to-one -one is dedicated to them. So if they're in a scenario that they have sent their child back to school and their child's TA is now with another bubble, then in actual fact, that is unlawful. Because again, it's going back to Section 42 of the Children and Families Act, which says that everything in Section F must be provided by the local authority. If that is their case, there is a legal complaint there to the local authority that actually they're unlawfully acting because they're not delivering the plan. So look at Section F, and if it is specified and it is your child's own TA, then there is specific funding for that TA to be with your child. And in actual fact, you can demand that your child has their one-to-one. -one. And don't forget, one-to-ones are a lifeline for a lot of these children who actually won't be able to access a school environment without a full-time TA. So really look at what's in the plan. And if it is a dedicated one-to-one -to, -one to your child and not just a class TA, there isn't the flexibility that schools appear to think they have in terms of moving them into different bubbles. They do have to be with your child. And if that requires, for example, additional PPE to be put in place in order for them to work with your child on a one-to-one -one basis, because this is also something I hear from parents um, who are saying that actually they're being told the TAs can't work with their child because of obviously social distancing rules, then in fact, actually PPE measures just need to be taken place. They need to be wearing the face masks and gowns and obviously whatever's relevant. 
And again, that needs to be funded by local authorities because Section F says it has to be delivered. It must be delivered. And if that requires additional PPE in order for that to take place, then it has to be funded by local authorities. There really isn't a way around it for local authorities now that we're back in force as of the 1st of August. I mean, obviously, the issue is that, that, that when a child doesn't get the TA that they, they need, um, they, they end up failing. They may end up um, being excluded because their behaviour has deteriorated. Um, and it's very difficult then to, to unpick it and that their anxiety may rise. So, Nicole, if a parent, this is a parent's got them into, got into this position, the school has put them in this position, um, they don't know how to fight it, they don't know the law. And so they start thinking, well, my child's now ill with anxiety, maybe I really should start thinking about, you know, teaching them at home, as they put it. Mm -hmm. Is really this the best scenario? If it's right for the family, it, there is no best or worst, it has to be what's right for you. But again, it would be coming back to steer well clear of elective home education, especially if you do have an EHD plan. Often they've been really hard fought for. And what you really don't want to happen is to electively home educate, which generally is actually code for, I feel I have no other options, there's nothing mm -hmm. elective about it. Um, you bring your child home, and although that doesn't do away with the EHD plan, the EHD plan doesn't it, it's effectively paused. So the, the duties and all the benefits you would get under that plan and the educational sections of that plan just stop. And the second that you're making suitable alternative educational arrangements with your child, the duties on the local authority disappear to provide that provision in Section F. If we're looking at a situation where the anxiety is now so significant that it would be inappropriate for provision to be made at school, you can look at trying to get a formal education otherwise than a school arrangement put into place. The best way to go about that is to actually call an interim review of the plan. Um, because in order for a formal education otherwise arrangement to happen, you actually need the EHDP to be physically amended. You need Section I to be blank and the school to be removed from Section I, the child to be removed from the role. And the specific educational arrangements that would be made at home would be written in Section F. So you're going to need a review for plan for that to happen. If it's more a short term problem, um, short to medium term, so we're not looking at anxiety that we think is going to keep this child out of an educational setting for years and years. We're thinking more, you know, a few months. Then actually, it might be that you have grounds to get home education for your child provided for um, by the local authority because they're actually doing well to attend school. So there's a different, another different procedure because it's not hard for parents to figure out what they should be doing anyway. Um, but if you have a child who is medically unfit to attend school, there's a different procedure. Um, so what you want to be doing really is getting as much evidence of that as possible. You can go to the GP and the GP can just actually sign your child off as medically unfit to attend school. You know, if you have a treating clinician, if they're already being treated maybe by CAMS or um, they're having psychiatric input, then you can get letters of support from them. Um, when it becomes clear to everybody, including your child's school, that actually they are likely to be absent for more than 15 days, then the school come under a duty to notify the local authority. They should be writing to them to say, this child is going to be um, absent from school for more than 15 days because they're medically unfit to attend school. 
um, these are their needs, these are their outcomes, this is what they're working towards at the moment. And then the obligation becomes the, the, the local authority's obligation, essentially, um, to make sure that your child is receiving a suitable education uh, within the home. And that can take many forms. It can be within the home. It might actually be provision through hospital school or an online tuition provider, something like that. It's very flexible. Um, the obligation, again, is for it to be full time, but that would be full time within the context of that child's needs. Um, you know, 25 hours is full time within an education setting. But if what you're receiving is dedicated one to one tuition, less hours may actually constitute full time education. And for some children, because of their medical needs, actually full time education in the home would just be too much anyway. You know, maybe 10 hours a week, a couple of hours a day would be more than enough, maybe less than that. Um, so potentially bringing your child home is an option. But it's just, again, just steering clear of the elective. It's not really elective. If your child needs to come home because they're too unwell, they're too anxious to go to school, there's nothing elective about that. So steer clear of that wording. It would either be an education otherwise arrangement or it would be that your child is medically unfit to attend school. Both of those options keep the onus on the local authority. Uh, you, you talk about annual review there. Can we talk about um, post-16? And this is the term for annual reviews for transitions. Um, I mean, both of you will have um, a view for HIPAA. So what's happened this last year is that um, some 16-year-olds have still found they haven't had a place at, um, at FE because you know, they haven't mm -hmm. had a finalised EHCP or they haven't been able to visit. Um, and with the restrictions and so on, how is um, how can you make sure that you that this doesn't happen for next year? So, firstly, for Haley, that um, you can get to visit the school that you the the, the college or school that your child wants to, to go to, and making sure that 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 process is as smooth as possible. Mm -hmm. and, and Nicole, if there if your young person is um, EOTAS and has an EHCP. Um, what happens at 16 and 18? Will the local authority then say, well, we've lost it? So if you can both um, address those issues. Okay, so in terms of transition, obviously COVID happened kind of February, March of this year. Transition for people going into post-16 provision should have started around November last year. So I would have hoped that some of those transitional arrangements were already obviously being put in source in order for the EHC plans to be finalised in March. If any parents, I just have to test out, have children in a post-16 provision now or should be in a post-16 provision now, certainly you can pre-action for those final EHC plans because they are overdue. So if there are any parents without a finally finalised EHC plan, legally they have to now have them. So that's the first thing, they, they should have them. Um, Schools and colleges, I think, are doing quite a lot to, in order to allow transition to still happen relatively normally next year. So certainly cases that we're involved in, we started getting transition review invites from schools um, to take place around, like I said, the October, November time in order to start discussing actually what's relevant for this young person as they're approaching transition. What type of setting is there going to be a change in setting? Where are we going to be looking at? 
if there are actual physical restrictions on visiting, and it is more hard now because of the difficulty with bubbles and limiting visitors, many schools have adopted uh, kind of virtual tours for parents where you can obviously sign up and view the school virtually. And I would encourage parents to do that. What I try and ask clients to do is perhaps create a list. So look at your child's specifically needs and what they're going to need from post 16 and a college. And whether that's, for example, speech and language therapy is the most important thing that you need to talk for them or ASD provision, make a list of some questions around that and understand how that's going to be delivered. And then ask those same questions to every single college that you approach so that you've got a real clear comparator about which, which college can offer you what from your um, relevant requirements. So asking those set questions to a um, number of different colleges is quite helpful. Certainly attending any kind of virtual viewings. Um, schools are quite amenable if they can't obviously offer kind of virtual viewings. Lots of them are doing kind of Zoom or Skype where you can ask questions, um, similarly telephone calls. So I think schools have adapted quite well in order to allow parents to look around. And again, it just goes back to this whole the law is back in force, transitions should still be happening. So parents who do not get contacted about a transition meeting around October, November, should certainly be contacting their local authority, getting a transition meeting in the diary, even if that's going to happen by Zoom, Skype, etc., and actually start planning it in the normal way that they would. And again, don't get um, put down by this whole, you're a pushy parent, you've got ages to go, because lots of children with these difficulties Transition takes a very long time to plan. They're going to need to know where they're going, um, what's important for this young person. Their views are going to need to be heard. So don't feel like a pushy parent. Certainly, if you haven't heard October, November time, contact your local authority, contact school and get a date in the diary for the transition meeting. And between now and then, start doing as much research as you can. Look into the school website, ask all of the questions, and um, lots of parent groups, and obviously like yourself, Tanya, who you can reach out to, ask questions, be put in contact with parents who perhaps have children at that school as well, and just do as much research as you can, and then push for your transition meetings, just as you would have any other year. So if you get to um, 18 or 16, firstly, you might want your child to try an FE college. Or, or you might want to continue with some form of tutoring or so on. Um, what is the risks to losing an EHCP if you're EOTAF at age 16 or at age 18? Okay. I don't think there's any real difference um, in risk whether you're within an education setting or whether you're EOTAF um, in terms of that you might lose your EHCP and um, so that it might be fee. Um Obviously, at those ages, you're probably going to be looking um, for the plan to be reviewed for some changes to be made to the provision anyway, um, and more heavy focus on the development of independent life skills, maybe um, preparing for adulthood. So EOTAS, um, just like any other provision, can continue up to the age of 25, um, as long as an EHC plan can, as long as it would be inappropriate for that provision to be made within a school. Um, what I would say, um, and it's true actually of um, children who were in um, special schools, central special independent schools, the years of phase transition tend to be the more dangerous years in terms of the local authority trying to reverse that position and potentially bring that young person back into um, the more mainstream education sector. Um, 
just because it's a more obvious point for it to happen, they will have finished um, in theory whatever courses they were following, be that their GCSEs or their A levels or BTECs or whatever it is they're looking at. Um, which means that legally um, it's procedurally for local authorities to try at that point. Um, EOTAS, just like every other EXE plan, will be reviewed every year anyway. And you may find um, that local authorities do try to attend um, the, the home learning arrangements and bring that child back into school. Firstly, because local authorities just seem to have an aversion to EOTAS anyway, um, they don't like the safeguarding element of it, of, of having children um, missing from education, if you like, although they're not really missing from education. Um, and also because it's quite expensive, um, actually, to have a really good quality educational package in place under EOSAS can cost as much as some of the really top-end specialist independent schools out there. So actually, there, there is a motivation there for local authorities to try to bring children out of EOSAS. Um, which is why when you're at those years in particular, but for every year, you want to be making your position very clear as to why it would be inappropriate for this provision to be made in, in, a, in a more traditional school setting for your child. If that is their anxiety, can you get medical evidence? Can you get them from the doctor or the GP psychiatrist, the tutor? Um, it's about making that argument because that is the only legal basis for Riosa. So if you can't satisfy the local authority that it is inappropriate for that provision to be made in a school, they are going to tend to try to funnel that child back into, into a, a more traditional education setting. Just touching on what Nicole said there as well, Tanya, um, obviously we both attend annual reviews for our clients regularly, and you might find that at any normal kind of annual review, not in a phase transition year, um, local authorities just don't even bother to attend. They they get the invite. Schools often try to track them down left, right, and centre. They just don't come. And then suddenly we'll go to the transition review, and somebody from the local authority miraculously appears. And that can really put parents off, particularly if you don't have any representation with you, because you might be used to going to four years of annual reviews and having nobody there. And then suddenly you get local authority representatives that you've probably never met or never even spoken to who have just appeared out of nowhere. And that can really um, raise parents' anxiety and then they can become, if that happens to parents, just ask for a moment to compose yourself. Certainly don't panic about it. You would have gone in there very well prepared. But I think that is something that can be sprung on a, on a parent. Sometimes they're not even informed in advance that the local authority are going to be attending. And I know with our clients, that does cause that little bit of anxiety. But it just seems to be a pinch point where phase transfer, local authorities have a bit longer to look at the plans. And obviously, it's a, it's a moment when they can relook at their budgets and see, OK, which are the expensive placements? Can we pull any of these back in? And we just see it every single year. We see it for children going up into year seven. We see it for post-16. We also obviously see it for post-19. So they are the real pinch points. And that might be where parents just do look for a little bit more support going into those transition reviews, obviously, particularly if they have big packages at stake, because you want to secure that package for your young person, obviously, going forward. And this happens to us with, um, with the, um, the local authority suddenly showing up at the transition year and not yeah. being interested in any other year. And it does happen. And I mean, it is, it is uh, like he said, it's a real pinch point. It's a, it's a review where we would say it's a little bit more dangerous um, mm -hmm. for, for the EHCP and maybe you want to get some additional support in to look at 
paperwork or maybe represent you at the meeting, particularly so when you're looking at post-19, because not only then do we see local authorities, as we have in previous years, saying, oh, they're now ready for mainstream secondary, or now they can go to the local FE college, but post-19 tends to be when we see a huge increase in decisions to cease to maintain. So like this young person um, is an adult now, we want to pass them off to um, adult social care services, want to get them off their education budget, and that is when we see a huge amount of the decisions to cease to maintain um, for no reason other than the fact that this young person has hit the age of 19. Yeah, Nicole's completely correct about that. Um, I mean, this actually plays into a question from a parent who's saying, um, can an LA say that they don't do home education because children and you, um, young people are better off in school? Or can it ultimately name a school saying it can meet needs, even when you've said that you want EOTA? Okay. So first part of that question, the answer is really quite simple, no. Um, so local authorities are entitled to have policies um, that give indications of the kind of positions that they might take. And as I sort of touched upon in one of the earlier questions, local authorities do just have an aversion to EOTA. There is this general... Um, the decision, you know, underlying decision of it's better for children to be with children, it's better for them to be able to socialise, it's better for them to have more input from qualified um, it's a teaching bit, professionals. It's a bit like a general aversion to ABA programmes, parents who want ABA programmes is a bit of an aversion to those as well. Yeah, and so there is just, uh, and, and this is across the country actually, across England and Wales, there is just an aversion to EOSA. But local authorities aren't entitled to have policies that frustrate legislation. And, I mean, both under the Education Act and now enshrined in the Children and Families Act under Section 61, there is specific provision for the OTAS to happen. So if local authorities do have a blanket policy of, no, we don't do this, what they're doing is they're frustrating the intentions of the legislators. Because if Parliament didn't intend for parents to be able to educate otherwise than at school, they wouldn't have put it in the Act. Um, so they can't have that um, blanket policy. No, that would be challengeable. Um, firstly, under judicial review, um, because it's frustrating legislation. And secondly, there's probably going to be a claim there for disability discrimination, because that policy is really going to going to affect disabled um, children and young people. And they In can't fact, have that policy. Sorry. Um, when you're talking about policies as well, is, do they have um, sort of minimum responsibilities for monitoring. Um, a parent asked, um, their LA is now starting to insist on samples of work to monitor um, children who are EOTAS or home educated. Um, how can parents fight this? So, I mean, it, can they have this as their stated policy? So that, this all comes from um, a quite recent piece of statutory guidance that was issued, was issued in April 2019. Um, and it's the home education guidance. And previously, it was about 15 pages long, I can't remember the exact number of pages. This new guidance came out in April 2019, and it's gone up to 45 pages. Um, the legal position actually hasn't changed at all. So if parents do receive a request from a local authority saying, can we see samples of your work, or we want to come to serve you teaching, we want to meet your child, anything like that, ultimately, you have the right to say no. Um, the local authority doesn't have any legal right to insist upon that. Um, again, they may have a policy that is an indication that that is something that they would be looking to do, but that policy doesn't override the legislation, so parents can just say no. 
However, and it's a big however, under this new guidance, um, chapter six specifically, um, it can be really handy actually for parents to go and have a read of that. Um, what the um, statutory guidance says under the new guidance, it's very much more that local authorities, it's not necessarily checking up to make sure that parents are doing um, what they're supposed to be doing. It's about making sure that all of the children in their area are receiving an efficient and suitable education. And it's saying to local authorities, you need to come up with ways to determine whether or not this home education programme is actually suitable. Now, it also says, um, and it's very hostile in its wording, it says if parents are blanket refusing to provide you um, with samples of work, you know, it's a very reasonable thing to do to ask local authority, then that alone um, could give rise to um, an expectation or a decision from you that the education that they're not, that they're receiving isn't actually suitable. Um, and then parents can find themselves in a really difficult position where the local authority might be looking for education enforcement orders against them. Um, it, it's all just the expectations have changed under that guidance, is what I would say. The legal position happens, you do have every right to say no. My concern would be if you are just saying no, um, that the local authority actually may say, well, we are going to take this as an indication that that education is suitable. It should be a light touch approach. So if the local authority do contact you and they want some information from you and the information that they receive um, is appropriate, it's satisfied and the education is sufficient, then really they should go away. I mean, if the child is at home under EOTAS, um, then there will be a more formal education program in place in accordance with Section F anyway, and the child will be having annual review. Um, so there would still be that monitoring in place. This would be more for children who are being electively home educated. But if you do have a child with special educational needs who is electively home educated, I would just really say question, is it elective? Did I find myself here by my own choice? Do I feel actually that I can meet all of my child's needs without any external support? If the answer to either of those is no, then there's a chance that you've been funneled somewhere that you never really wanted to go. Um, so yeah, you can you can refuse, you can say no, you've got they've got no right to ask of you, they've got no right to enter your home, you know, nothing like that. Um, but it's just that under this new guidance, there is a suggestion actually that if parents are refusing to provide information then that might suggest that what they've put in place isn't appropriate and it could potentially give rise to safeguarding um, obligations of the local authority as well. That's more unusual, um, you know, that they would say, oh, well, you've not provided work, so we're going to look at this from a safeguarding perspective. But parents do have to bear in mind that those powers are there. And although you don't have to comply with um, their request to show samples of work, if the safeguarding um, procedures are kicked off, obviously then parents really would need to be um, being a little bit more helpful or at least getting some, some, some advice about what they should and shouldn't be doing. If they really, they can threaten social services on you and, and say, particularly okay. if there is some element of social care within the EHCP, that there is a social worker who comes along to your annual can they do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, potentially, I mean, we, being specialist solicitors, obviously, what we see is when things have gone horribly wrong. Um, so we, unfortunately, have very, very bad experience with such things and always approach with a sense of caution um, because we do see parents who really feel like they have been um, dealt with punitively. You know, social care has gotten involved for no other reason than the fact that they want to give 
and that it does happen you know I, I wish I could say that that's just paranoia but it isn't it really does happen um so Hayley say say you are you know home educating or your child um you know is out of school um they don't have a plan mm-hmm. um but you think that they have sense um, this happens, you know, you think that doesn't happen, but actually it happens quite a lot. Um, yeah. But of course, you don't have any evidence because they're not in school for whatever mm-hmm. reason. Um, how do you go about then applying for an EHC needs assessment if you have no evidence? So lots of parents are put off actually making an application for an EHC needs assessment by unlawful policies or unlawful forms that are on local authority websites. So if you were going to apply for an EHC needs assessment, if you go onto your local authority website, type in EHC needs assessment, there should be a dedicated form or some way or an email address or an address that you can send an application to. What often happens with these forms or policies is they will say to parents, you need a diagnosis, you need to show evidence of plan do review, you need to show that your child is academically three or four years behind their peers, There's lots of erroneous data that local authorities ask for. That is a policy that is not legislation. What the legislation actually says in order to make an EHC needs assessment request under Section 36 is that your child has or may have special educational needs and provision may need to be made for them in accordance with an EHC plan. It's very flexibly and loosely worded. And the reason for that, as we've been talking through this whole um, recording today, is every single child's needs is different. So if you were going to have certain criteria of this is what necessary means, then in actual fact, there would always be children that fall either side of that criteria because their needs are individual to them. So the, the legislation actually doesn't ask for any specific evidence. That's just erroneous policy making from the local authority. And by the very nature of what an EHC needs assessment is, an assessment is not a determination that you'll definitely get an EHC plan. It is just assessment of your child's needs. So if you are in any doubt, if you have any evidence available to you, so for example, you might have tutors going into your home to give your child an extra bit of reading support or support with maths or you know, help to try and concentrate them, if you've got any medical evidence, if your child's taking medication or if they're under the care of a GP, anything you've got to hand first be put into your application. But just make it very clear in that application, this is all that we've got to hand. These are the reasons why I think my child needs an EHC needs assessment. Set it all out and send it off to the local authority. Don't be put off by not having the prescribed criteria they're asking for. Because if they refuse your request on the basis of you haven't supplied that evidence, that's actually unlawful because that is not a legal requirement. So you just need to put in whatever evidence that you have, however minimal it is, because what the law actually says is if there is any doubt, this is what the assessment's for. The assessment is to assess your child and actually figure out once you've done that assessment, it might be the case that your child's needs can be met with a little bit of extra support at mainstream and you don't need a plan. Or it could be that actually what your child requires is going to necessitate an EHC plan. And in which case, obviously, then an EHC plan should be issued. But this is very much the preliminary step. And you don't require any specific evidence. 
but we certainly hear of lots of parents being put off actually making the initial application just because of misinformation that's given to them um, by the school or by local authorities and not necessarily to prevent them applying but you hear lots of it you know if you have dyslexia you'll never get an EHC plan if your child's high functioning autistic particularly where children are coping at school um, and schools are not seeing um, evidence of the need for an EHC plan but you might have children breaking down at home and having meltdowns um, and obviously having behaviours so don't be put off applying. If you think there might be something wrong that you need additional support for, make the initial application. And obviously, if it's refused for an unlawful reason, then again, that can be challenged. But it should go ahead. And obviously, whether a plan is issued or not will depend on that assessment. So, but it's still a good idea, you would say, to you know get your CAMS evidence if you've got some and, and that kind of thing and, and get it together. Yeah, definitely. Any kind of evidence you can put together, even if that's you making a record at home. If your child's, for example, presenting with uh, behavioural outbursts, you might want to keep a record of when that's happening, whether there are any specific triggers. Um, if you're needing to get any additional support yourself, you should be documenting that. So you might be having tutors come in or you're having to get PAs at home to help you support your child because, you know, you can't cope one on one. All of that is good evidence, even if it's just from a parent. But if there are any agencies or doctors or CAMs or anyone helping you, certainly put that evidence together, even if it's not specifically on your local authorities checklist, put in anything that you can to support the fact that your child might need some additional support. Yeah, I mean, in the context of parents as well who are electively home educating and maybe have been since their child was of school age, so this child has never attended school, um, I think there is this, um, this culture that evidence from a parent is somehow of a lesser importance than mm -hmm. if it were to come from a teacher. But if you are your child's teacher, um, then that evidence should be afforded the exact same way. I mean, it should be anyway, regardless of whether your child's in school or not. Um, and special educational needs, you know, you don't need, as Hayley said, the diagnosis to be in place, but you can see when something is, is not quite worth as well as it should or where it appears as a need, you know, those needs could be in the context of our very quiet home on a one-to-one -one basis. My child is very distracted by sound. If the telephone rings, you know, it's all-encompassing. You can't focus on anything else. You might be distracted by things on the walls. We have to learn in a completely blank room. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my child um, is extremely anxious by any change in our routine. You know, if we try to introduce something new into the home learning programme, that doesn't like people coming into the home as well. Yeah, yeah. so... You know, these are all needs which are indicative. You know, they're not hard and fast diagnoses. No one could say, well, that means that my child has this. But they are all indicators that your child may have special educational needs, which is enough to satisfy that legal test. And you can go from elective home education to EO tests. Uh, yes. That's perfectly possible to do. It is, yeah. As long as you can evidence that it would be inappropriate for that provision to be made in a school, um, and, and that can be done. Um, you know, as I said, anxiety alone can be enough to, to satisfy that threshold. Well, ladies, thank you so much for sparing the time to talk to us over these two sessions. Um, I know so many parents um, were really keen to hear the answers that you've given today. Um, if you're watching or listening to this and you haven't taken our Autumn Send survey, please find the link in the bio um, for this in the information um, for these episodes um, that will really help us to advocate for your child's rights.
Um, and I hope this episode, these two episodes of SNJ in conversation have proved useful to you. Um, if this is the second one and you haven't heard the first one, please go back and listen to the first one because there was some really interesting stuff in there. Um, please do leave a review and tell your friends. But for now, um, Hayley Mason and Nicole Lee of SCN Legal, um, our specialist solicitors and legal experts, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank so you, Tana. So welcome. Thank you.